This is the second half of episode 129 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, uh, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. I'm here with uh, Kieran Martin, uh, uh, who has had a, an entire career in the UK government, uh, including uh, several years recently at GCHQ, which is the equivalent of the National Security Agency, uh, and who has now been named the... Uh, uh, chief executive of the uh, um, new uh, National Cybersecurity Center that the UK is, uh, has stood up. Uh, and uh, I really would like to get a feel for what the center is supposed to do, how big it is, uh, and why you got it started in the first place. Well, the impetus for creating it came from a number of factors. One was the government wanted to retain its focus on cybersecurity as a top-level national security threat, but the organizational coherence needed to deliver that hadn't quite been delivered. So there was a process just after the 2015 general election where the government looked through all its strategic defense and security priorities. It decided cyber was one that was going to invest heavily in it, but it wanted greater organizational coherence. There was one anecdote where a senior regulator um, asked who in the government could he talk to about cyber to make sure his sector took it seriously and received a three-and-a-half-page letter, which is more like a directory of different <laughs> bits of government with the, as they were on it. Now, there will always be different parts of government uh, involved, different parts of the public service. I have no law enforcement powers. I wear no uniform. I have no badge. I can't arrest anybody, and nor can any of my staff. So alignment with law enforcement um, and with the military for other circumstances is absolutely vital. But in terms of leading all incidents, in terms of strategies for protecting critical infrastructure, and strategies for encouraging better cybersecurity in the UK economy and society as a whole, there is a single uh, lead. I think particularly important for the government um, in, in that was incident management. Cyber incidents are complex. Um, they bear some similarities to how, how you handle other major emer- emergencies, but there are differences as well. Sometimes they can be harder and take longer to work out what's uh, going on. Sometimes they can contain a deeply covert and classified element in terms of how you know what is happening. And sometimes they can have little public impact, sometimes they can have significant public impact. And we had pockets of excellence in all of those disciplines in high side detection of classified threats and communicating to the public. What we didn't have because the expertise of that lay in different organizations was a good way of bringing it all together in a single place to manage a single incident, which can have all of those features at the same time. So do you see, uh, or does the government see um, NCSC as a an operational or a coordinating entity? Uh, that is to say, are you going to take troops from uh, GCHQ and uh, MI5 and actually execute on this uh, strategy, or are you just going to try to make sure all the horses stay more or less in the same uh, we're direction? An operation. We're an operational okay. agency. So whilst we're headquartered in uh, London, we remain part of GCHQ, which is headquartered in Cheltenham, and which is a dual-facing mission for intelligence and security uh, based on the use of database on partnerships, including pivotally for us with the National Security Agency uh, here in, in the U.S. So we still, in the operational sense, we're still charged with protection. We're still charged with what we can do to protect, if necessary, under uh, carefully covering uh, legislative authorities to disrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also charged with providing the advice to the victim. Um, uh, of course, 
the ownership of the risk and the response lies with the data owner, but we would be the lead authority in providing that advice and working out how to mitigate it and in formulating, for example, an assessment, not just of the attacker and the attack, but the public impact and, and the communications around that. So it is operational. Now, there is also a coordinating role, but it is primarily an operational delivery agency. So, you know, I've, I've, I, I realized recently that most of my government career was doing startups inside government, and shortly thereafter, how dumb that is uh, as a career, because when you're a startup in government, usually you've got a great reputation, because you haven't screwed up yet, uh, and uh, a great mandate, and very little actual ability to get things done because you're so new. Um, and everybody who gave up turf hates you. Um, it, so let me ask, was it painful to, I, I'm not sure you were part of creating the NCSE, but was it painful to separate some of those other uh, uh, sets of uh, operators from their old mission, or is this really just a repurposing of people inside GCHQ? I think there was a recognition across our system that we needed to do something and we needed to change and be more aligned and fleet-footed to respond to the threat. Now, there are always challenges in setting up a different organization, but there's a lot of goodwill around it. I think the intelligence community um, aligned and very much saw this as a, an all-purpose set of threats that we needed to try to uh, get to grips with them. We're very forward-leaning with staff and mm-hmm. with, um, uh, with proposals for uh, integrating our um, our effort. It's not just a repurposing of people within um, GCHD. Um, we will, we are bringing in um, our search people. We're bringing in protective security experts, some of the best in the world uh, from from MI5. We're having a formal partnership with our made our principal agency on cybercrime, the National Crime Agency, mm-hmm. about embedding their staff in the National Cybersecurity Centre to make sure that in those major instances with the law enforcement dimension that we align the efforts of us with the efforts of law enforcement. The same uh, principle goes for defence and indeed with some industry uh, partners um, as well. So it's much more than a repurposing. Going beyond that, uh, we need to step up our ability to provide advice to all the critical sectors of our economy. So one of the things as we expand our staff over the coming months and years that I'll be looking for is people who not just um, have a deep level of cyber expertise, but people who understand those sectors. Yeah. There's no use to a or to the country if we come up with the best system in the world for protecting a nuclear reactor or um, the defence sector's interest if it makes that proposition economically unviable. We have to make sure we understand the way. I, I was always discovering when I was at NSA that things that we were surprised by, the people at the Federal Communications Commission said, well, where have you been? Of course this has been happening for, for five years. We've been hearing about it uh, from people who want to get regulatory favors from us. We're not going to be a regulator, and I think there's um, a very deliberate, uh, that's a very deliberate decision, and that's a correct decision. Um, one of the problems in cybersecurity, and you'll be hearing, you hear a lot of that in, in the US as well, is this continuing problem where it's put in a box that has some magic fixed to it that's isolated from everything else in an organization. So if there was to be a cyber regulator as distinct from you know, uh, a sectoral regulator, um, how would that work? What we actually want to do, and a good example here is our finance sector. Um, our central bank, Bank of England, has got a statutory 
mandate to promote financial stability. There's lots of subsequent detail, but that's the headline, promote financial stability. The Bank of England have said financial stability quite obviously includes cybersecurity in the financial sure. sector. doesn't need to pass a new law to make that interpretation. It's a perfectly legitimate interpretation. What's valuable about that approach is that when they issue their rules and their guidance and implementing those rules to the people they're charged with regulating, cybersecurity is an integral part of financial risk, legal risk, all the other risks that promoting financial stability is designed to obligate. What they do is they come to us and say, help us understand the generic problems in cyberspace, generic risks, and also specifically from what we've seen from your expertise, how these have played out globally in the finance sector so that we can factor it in. And we cooperate extremely closely with them. We're working on new standards with them for, that are appropriate to the finance sector. It's a really productive partnership. Um, we want to try to replicate that approach in all the key sectors we're doing that. So the thing that probably is most jarring about the NCSC uh, from an American perspective yeah. is that it is a part of GCHQ mm-hmm. because um, after Snowden, the idea that the National Security Agency would play this role inside the United States is just not a st- it's a non-starter. Uh, and uh, um, uh, yet, and, and certainly there's been Snowden impact in uh, um, Great Britain as well. Uh, how is it that the political climate is so different uh, in the UK from the US, despite a relatively similar set of experiences uh, in the last four or five years around surveillance? Well, I can't really speak to the US experience other than pay tribute to our brilliant colleagues in the NSA on whom we depend for for, for so much. What I would say about the UK experience, um, there's no attempt to hide the connection to um, GCHQ. As I noted earlier in public remarks, um, we've always had a what is now called a cybersecurity mission, but an information security mission. And our most famous um, alumni, Alan Turing, spent more of his time um, building secure communications for the UK than he did um, breaking other people's secure communications. So it's, it's a continuation of a, of, of a prior history. I think in the UK, um, we had a process within government where our political leadership decided they wanted to have a single leading authority for cybersecurity. That then um, becomes a choice as to where you want to put that. One of the options is the intelligence community. And um, I think the principal uh, challenge of putting in the intelligence community is not uh, what you alluded to, but actually um, is about making sure we're better at communicating publicly, given that... So that's very hard, isn't it? Which, yeah. is, which, is, which, is, which is challenging from uh, an intelligence background. But the reason why the government, I think, chose to place its trust in the intelligence community is data, skilled people, mm-hmm. partnerships. Um, now, some of those could be replicable in a new organisation, but you couldn't guarantee that, whereas you could guarantee the existing skill sets, the data, the cap- processing capabilities, the engineering, and crucially... Five Eyes and the NSA uh, partnership as, as, as part of that effort. I can't explain why um, uh, the underlying um, political uh, climate. All I would say is that um, it is a matter of transparent public record what the connection between GCHQ and the National Cybersecurity um, uh, Centre is, and it doesn't seem to be the subject of a great deal of, um, uh, of, 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 of debate in the UK. 
So one of the issues that tends to divide the defenders and the offense, uh, uh, or at least the commercial sector and uh, and government, is what uh, has come to be called the vulnerabilities equities process here in the U.S. And you know, there's been an equities process inside uh, uh, GCHQ and NSA for a very long time. Uh, but now there is that hacking and government hacking for intelligence purposes is uh, uh, one of the tools that, that are available to, to governments. Uh, there's concern on the part of industry and, and some uh, NGOs that government is finding flaws and choosing to exploit them rather than to cure them by going to the manufacturer. Uh, is that process something that you'll be a player in? Will you own that process? Or is that not how the UK government has organized its approach to the issue? Well, first of all, look at our record. Um, this year we've published 20 major vulnerability disclosures mm-hmm. that people have acted on and given us credit for, and that includes the like of Apple and most of major household names in the global technology. Um, uh, picture. Um, secondly, I think we've said quite a lot about this. Um, you mentioned um, uh, Snowden, and we've had a number of um, legal cases uh, taken um, in, in, in the UK about the framework under which we operate, and in terms of the judgments on the framework, they've all been upheld as lawful. And one of those, um, and indeed I was the, uh, I gave the witness statement for the government on, on this, uh, one of those. Um, related to um, equities and, 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 and vulnerabilities. And we set out very clearly what we do. We're a cybersecurity agency. It's absolutely critical for us that we not just disclose vulnerabilities, but we work with industry to do secure by, um, by default. And we are. Um, we have said that there may be critical national security requirements from time to time in specific circumstances where um, for operational uh, uh, reasons it is necessary to exploit our vulnerability. All I would say is that it is absolutely transparent the excellent work we've done um, in helping the global industry fix vulnerabilities and fix um, the underlying infrastructure in their products. So I have heard from people who are closer to this than I am um, in industry that uh, Actually, if you look at the sophisticated government attackers, um, they all have their own style of vulnerability, their own approach, their own their own set of vulnerabilities. So that uh, um, disclosing vulnerabilities that are being used by uh, the U.S. or the U.K. probably doesn't disadvantage the Russians or the Chinese as much as we might think. I don't. I don't really recognize that. I, the utility of disclosing vulnerabilities, I think, is is fairly obvious. Um, sometimes I think we don't pay enough attention um, to making our systems, our devices, our infrastructure as safe as possible, regardless of who the attacker mm-hmm. is. So you can talk about the tradecraft of various sophisticated state actors, but as part of our new strategy, um, we're also deeply worried about how much low-grade, high-volume attacks are, are are getting through. That is, in my view, just as pernicious in terms of its potential to damage 
the necessary public confidence in the digital economy and in our new way of life in the information age, uh, some of the you know, more, frankly, glamorized attacks that, um, uh, that, 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 that take place or, 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 or seem to be um, a risk. And so I would, I would query any assumption that there's limited value in, 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 in this line of work. I think it's um, extremely, uh, extremely valuable. You talked a little bit about the idea that, uh, and you just uh, alluded to it, that uh, a lot of the attacks are not that sophisticated. Uh, and if people implemented, you know, the top 20 security measures that have been identified by various governments, uh, they could stop 80 or 90 percent of the attacks that we see today. Um, and... and um, Doing that requires that you popularize them and then that you change the culture uh, and maybe more importantly, that you get people for whom security isn't that important, quite rationally security isn't that important, uh, uh, to nonetheless pursue security because people who interact with them highly value security and need them to, to, to prevent that kind of, a certain amount of intrusion. Otherwise, you get a sort of uh, drive-by uh, or other uh, indirect infection that could seriously cause problems. So how do you do that? Well, there's so much in, in, your, in, in your question, Stuart, so I'll try to break it down a little. First of all, the educational aspect that you talked about and the operational aspect of implementing the top 20 measures or, or whatever it is, is important. But I think it's always important to realize the limitations of any particular line of uh, defense. And that line that we were just talking about um, is around a set of things which will ultimately depend on user behavior. And user behavior at scale will always be inherently unreliable because right. 50,000 spear phishing email only needs one person to open it. And, and people are proud if they can get their, 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 the number of people who click on those links down to 20%. So, <laughs> so you know, but, but it's a useful thing because if you can well, mitigate the risk of 20%, then that was a useful right. thing to do in, in and of itself. But then there are other points, and again, you've alluded to some of it in your question, you know, it's working out what you care about. Um, there are some occasions where um, the damage done um, by an attack um, can be you know, contained to a way that it would, would have been disproportionate to, um, uh, to prevent against it in the, um, in the first place. I mean, to give you an example that's in the public domain that concerns us, our own um, GCHQ public-facing website um, two years ago was briefly taken down in, uh, in an attack, and there was some minor publicity around it, but it is 20 pages of um, static text explaining to the public what we do, uh, therefore not a business-critical system. Um, to defend against you know, at scale in perpetuity, you know, each and every attack for an organisation um, may not be proportionate. Of course, as an organ, as a national security organisation, we take our information security very seriously, and we employ some of the most sophisticated cryptography in the world to protect what we most um, care about. So, I would encourage all the organisations to think about what do you uh, most um, care about as well. But I think then one of the other things we're trying to look at and a core part of our new strategy is how can government and major industrial providers um, work together to automate so much of this stuff so you can look at the way you can you know, use some of our uh, data of, of malware, bad IP addresses and so forth, 
you can use the very significant platform that government service, government online services give you as test beds for uh, sort of automatic security measures. Because the more you can do, and it is technologically possible, uh, the more you can do to automate defences in a way that doesn't rely on end user behaviour in any way, um, the better it can be. So, um, as I've said before, we can filter um, unwanted email, we can filter offensive content, we can block offensive content or malicious email, but why aren't we doing more of that systemically in a way that the um, end user never notices? So the example, um, there are other things we can do. Um, I think the trust in email systems is a crucial uh, issue, and there's more we can do uh, on that front. So we've just launched a pilot to stop spoofing of our .gov.uk domain, which involves sending a, uh, setting a DMARC policy that says if you're preparing to send something from .gov.uk and it doesn't configure to the following format, yeah, don't, um, don't deliver it, deliver it to us. And so um, the way that works is that anyone who works in the UK government um, has an email address that is at something.gov.uk, right. always at something. Um, but we've noticed that one of the favourite techniques of um, some attacking group um, is um, just at gov.uk. So you send an email policy, says, don't deliver that. On the first day we tried this, we got 58,000 emails from taxrefund.gov.uk. <laughs> now, the intended recipients from taxrefund.gov.uk never got this email, never knew anything about it, just delivered to us. Right. If you can scale that up, and I'm not over-promising, but if, if that line of inquiry and research works, that could be very powerful. That that depends on a lot of cooperation from the ISPs, I assume. Um, sometimes, um, and certainly scaling it to a national level does, um, we use .gov.uk. We own that. That's how it's doing it to all the things. doesn't mm-hmm. depend on. So, uh, one of the things that I've observed about this is that uh, it's it's very difficult to solve this problem just by defending. Uh, that it, uh, if there isn't some mechanism for deterring people from uh, launching these attacks, from uh, giving them some co- uh, sense that they could easily be caught and that the consequences will not be good for them, uh, um, that without that, uh, um, it's desperate business to just try to defend against everything that people with impunity are throwing at you. Um, and I would have thought that one of the advantages of being aligned with the intelligence community is that uh, finding people, identifying people, is something that the intelligence community uh, views as part of its tradecraft. Uh, you know, the figuring out who is attacking us is, is the intelligence community's job if it isn't law enforcement's uh, um, how much of a role do you think NCSC will play uh, either in interacting with people who are under attack or in trying to provide uh, uh, connective tissue in that regard? That's a very significant role for us. Um, we, our role in incidents is the full range of what a major incident could involve. So it is the detection, right? Um, finding out now. There may be a human element to that, and so other parts of the intelligence community or law enforcement or other parts of um, public service may have a contribution to make, and we would want that to be fully available um, to us. Working with the victim is an integral part. I think we always have a two-phase playbook of incident response and then um, and mitigation and then building the defences 
um, beyond that to, to make sure it, it doesn't happen again. We want to, and I think one of the ambitions for the National Cyber Security Centre, when you think about what it might look like if we're successful in three, four, five years' time, is in terms of critical infrastructure under serious attack, that we would have a good knowledge of the system and a good relationship with the people that own it. And we do have some of those relationships already. And then over time, because our legacy infrastructure is not great, mm -hmm. these systems were not built with security in, in, in mind, we can mitigate that to a point, but the strategic solution is when we design new systems. So building in and taking that expert advice in sort of threat action neutral risk mitigation um, systems where the system uh, cannot easily be totally disrupted by a single attack, I think is a really important way of, of doing that. And then for us to have shared knowledge with the owner of that system about how it, will, how it might work, that will be very, very powerful in terms of securing it against some of the more serious threats that it will face. So when I'm talking to people who have some role in thinking about strategy, I say, if you believe that deterrence and attribution are a, a growingly important part of dealing with cyber attacks, then your cyber defense strategies, the technologies you deploy, ought to emphasize making attribution easier. That is to say, the kinds of defense of technologies you adopt ought to require people to invest more and more information about themselves about themselves in order to retain connection to the network that they're trying to get in and the more sensitive the network is the more uh, attribution information they should be sharing uh, it seems to me that uh, as long as as our defensive technologies um, start collecting more uh, information about the people on or on the networks, it makes the attribution task easier and that will make deterrence easier and that is, you know, offers some hope for a solution. So, I'm really sorry to give you an answer that's going to sound like I just want to have my cake and to eat it as well. <laughs> but look, this is, of course, being able to attribute, whether you do it publicly or you just give your political bosses a high degree of confidence in the judgment that you come to about where an attack comes from, of course, doing that as well as possible is, is vital. At the same time, um, we have to try to do what we can to make sure systems are uh, resilient, hard to take out in total, and recoverable, um, as well as well protected, um, whoever is attacking. Um, it's a holistic point. It really, this really isn't an either or. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, Kieran, thank you so much for your time. This was great. A very great overview of what NCSC is doing, and I expect we'll be hearing much more from you over the next several years. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, many thanks to Kieran Martin uh, for that interview. Uh, as always, the Cyberlaw Podcast is open to feedback. Uh, send your uh, suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Give us a good review if you feel like it on iTunes or the other podcast aggregators. Uh, this has been the second half of episode 129 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Coming up, we've got Ellen Nakashima of the Washington Post. Uh, Matt Cuts, the uh, chief 
Chief, former Google officer in government, uh, and Lisa Wiswell of the U.S. Digital Services team at the Pentagon. Uh, we're also going to hear from Assistant Attorney General John Carlin. Uh, join us for those and other interviews as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 